0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com.
1: Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show.
2: They know that a war will bring about even worse devastation and destruction and deaths than happened in the 2006 war. Mm. So that's a big calculation for Nasrullah and Hezbollah when they issue these threats.
1: Hezbollah promises revenge for yesterday's assassination in Lebanon. It's Wednesday, January 3rd, and this is Here and Now anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, the recent hack of a water treatment facility in Pennsylvania is raising questions about cybersecurity and critical infrastructure. Also, Some Ohio lawmakers want to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of a bill banning gender-affirming care for trans kids. We'll hear from one woman who made the choice to stop her gender transition after living as a trans man,
3: but maintains that gender transition care should be protected. I do not see an upside to anyone to creating an America where trans people are segregated. I do not see a way that that would have prevented me from a misstep on my journey. That's
1: coming up in about 15 minutes. We'll start the show, though, with the latest from the Middle East, after Israel apparently assassinated a Hamas leader in Lebanon yesterday. Scott Tong will explore the fallout of that attack, as well as news of a reported terrorist attack in Iran today, in just a moment. But first... An update from Gaza. A new report from the UN says 90% of Palestinians say they've regularly gone without food for at least a day. A million people are in a food emergency state, and another 375,000 are in the catastrophe phase, meaning the first criteria of famine, which is defined as at least 20% of a population suffering from food insecurity, malnutrition, or starvation. Shaza Moghrabi is head of communications for the UN's World Food Program in New York. She's in constant contact with her teams on the ground in Gaza, and she spoke today to Robin Young.
4: Shaza, what are families facing with food? Uh,
5: Thank you, Robin, for having me. I think, uh, as you said, uh, this is something that's uh, completely unprecedented uh, on so many levels. From one point, the scale, the sheer scale of it, but also the a rapid deterioration of the food security situation in Gaza uh, over the past uh, two, two and a half months. Uh, It's it's very concerning. So uh, we Mm -hmm. have not seen something like this before. What this means on the ground is that families are uh, going for days and days without food, particularly in the northern areas where it's been more difficult for humanitarians to access people who are in desperate need. Um, Each day is a desperate search for some food because, uh, as you know, food supplies have been completely depleted inside Gaza. And at the same time, Uh, the entry of food and humanitarian supplies into Gaza has been very, very uh, difficult. Um, The restrictions is not allowing us to uh, get the amount of food and humanitarian supplies that we need to measure up to the epic level uh, of of needs on the ground.
4: Yeah, well, we tried to connect uh, this week with Gaza journalist and mom, Maram Humaid, and she's been writing about her daughters missing their favorite foods and holiday treats, which, of course, know, makes us feel sick about all the leftover holiday cookies and cakes that are here. But she also talked about milk, baby formula. So you're saying this isn't getting in. I mean, does this mean trucks aren't being allowed in? Uh, what What's the sense?
5: We are getting some nutritional supplies in, uh, and particularly recently we've increased uh, the number of nutritional supplies that are coming into the trucks. But again, it's not nearly enough as much as we wanted to to meet the level of needs on the ground. Uh, what's actually coming into Gaza so far is just a drop in the ocean of needs, and we need more- much more. We need unimpeded, consistent access to avert uh, a catastrophe of epic proportions. As you've mentioned, uh, according to the report, uh, there is a very serious th- uh, risk of famine uh, in the in a matter of weeks uh, by February, as soon as February. And uh, the report came out on the 21st of December, and we were calling for um, a, a long-term ceasefire then. Every single day, this risk is becoming more and more of a reality so it in order to end this we need a cessation of hostilities we need commercial cargoes to go into Gaza. it's not just the humanitarian aid we need that to uh, uh flow back in and we need border crossings to open to allow for that
4: well what does i mean despite you know i, I, I mean aside from the horror of children especially who aren't eating we know that 7500 according to reports from Inside Gaza, are showing signs of wasting, wasting away. But what does a classification like famine do? Does it trigger some kind of different response?
5: I think the important thing is that just because famine is not declared does not mean people are not suffering, they're not starving. Starvation is quite rampant in Gaza nowhere is safe in Gaza and no one in Gaza is safe from starvation. And if you combine that with the weather conditions, with the inadequate, uh, you know, housing uh, that people are forced to stay in, winter coming in, this is a recipe for disaster where we're already worrying about the outbreak of disease. Couple that with malnutrition and you're going to, see millions and millions of people uh, die uh, of uh, uh, of uh, diseases and issues related to malnutrition so just because a declare a famine has not been declared does not mean people are not dying because of uh, related conditions because of the disease and the malnutrition
4: and by the way we sh- you should say you you are saying Rahsa, the um, Arabic pronunciation for Gaza and uh, either way we're hearing there's a fear that you know, moving people out might become displacement, that they might not be allowed back in. What can people do? I mean, this is,
5: to be honest, we as humanitarians are doing all that we can possibly can to reach people who are in need, but it's becoming really, really difficult. We are faced with a number of roadblocks, the operational space that is uh, shrinking, the layers of inspections that are Uh, at the borders, the communication blackouts, the relentless bombardments. It's not safe for our staff to deliver assistance, and it's not safe for people to access the distribution points. So uh, even our staff uh, are just as traumatized as the population. Mm. Uh, They've suffered loss, trauma, and also themselves are displaced. So it's an operation that is unprecedented. That being said, we are uh, doing all that we can, and we have been delivering Uh, as much as we possibly can under these impossible uh, conditions.
4: Shaza Moghrabi of the World Food Program, thank you so much.
5: Thank you for having me.
6: The head of Hezbollah says Israel's alleged assassination of a Hamas leader in Lebanon will not go without a response and punishment. Hezbollah is based in Lebanon, and the Washington Post quotes an anonymous U.S. official saying Israel was behind yesterday's drone strike in Beirut that killed Hamas official Saleh El aruri Although Israel has not claimed responsibility, the question is, will this now escalate the Mideast war in the region? The Washington Post's Sarah Dadouche joins us now from Beirut. Sarah, thanks for coming again. Thanks for having me. You just listened to Hezbollah's top leader speaking. One phrase that stood out that I saw is he said, we do not fear war, and those who think of war with us will regret it. What jumps out as you as far as what he talked about?
2: So this is pretty in line and consistent with what Hezbollah and Nasrallah, and Nasr, the leader, have, have promised uh, since the beginning of the war and, and, and predating the war. Uh, he also went on to say that a war with uh, Hezbollah will be very, very costly, uh, but I, I, I don't think that he he necessarily he he wasn't promising war he he didn't really up the ante when it came when it comes to a a war like response he he uh, he made kind of made the point that he doesn't really want Lebanon to be dragged into the war um, he he said that there's going to be a, a response to to the assassination of Salah Khaloud yesterday hmm. uh, but that was said as a separate point from his from his. Uh, his threat about a, a war, and that's only if Israel was to attack Lebanon.
6: Mm. And and for Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, what would the the benefits and the risks be of a large scale conflict against Israel?
2: So the, the, something that a lot of people have been discussing, which Nasrallah also brought up in his speech today, is you know the effect that this is going to have on the Lebanese people. Lebanon has been going. Through a severe economic crisis, which which seems minuscule in in you know in, in comparison to the to the war that's happening in Gaza right now, but but it, but it's a very big calculation for Hezbollah, which um, although a lot, uh, aligned with Iran and backed by Iran, is still very much a Lebanese organization. It's a very big, important part of the axis of resistance, um, but but it's still very much Lebanese, and and they are beholden to a certain degree. To, to the Lebanese public. And they know that a war will bring about even worse devastation and destruction and deaths than happened in the 2006 war. Mm. So that's a big calculation for Nasrallah, and Hezbollah when they issue these threats. Yeah. And, and uh, this is something mm-hmm. Nasrallah brought up in his speech today.
6: I understand. Uh, this Hamas leader uh, who was killed in the strike yesterday, uh, remind us who he was and why he was in Lebanon?
2: So Saleh al arudi is a is a uh, he's the deputy commander of of Hamas he's he's, he's quite senior. He uh, he was described to me today by 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 someone from Hezbollah as a an envoy of sorts. He's he's someone who travels between Turkey and Lebanon a lot. He's he he was described by this Hezbollah um, uh, spokesperson as a as as someone who met with Nasrallah regularly. He was supposed to meet with Nasrallah today. Uh, he was seen also as as someone who was uh, involved in the negotiations with Qatar. Uh, he he he. I mean, Hamas. You know, he was he was a, a pseudo foreign minister. If if if. if, if. Maybe that's the right mm-hmm. way to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was in Lebanon. You know, he he comes and goes a lot, but but probably to in 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 some part to meet with uh, Nasrallah. Hamas uh, has exiled leadership uh, in different places, and Lebanon is 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 one of those places. Um, and they tend to have their offices in in a suburb of, of Beirut called um mm-hmm. uh, that has a lot of Hezbollah offices also, but is a densely packed residential area.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, and and while we have you, uh, Sarah, we want to ask you about emerging news out of Iran. More than a hundred people died in blasts uh, near an event to commemorate the death of an Iranian general killed uh, in a U.S. air raid four years ago. What happened there?
2: So it's still very unclear what happened. Uh, we we haven't been able to to link it to to Israel yet. Uh, Nasrallah even brought up the attack. Iran has has been publishing news about it all day on its official news sites. There hasn't been any. Uh, blame assigned to any specific group or country. Uh, all we know is that early on, um, you know, they said that it wasn't. It wasn't sure. It wasn't clear if it was a terrorist attack. And then, very early on, they said it was a terrorist attack. Um, they haven't really blamed it on anyone. It it could be Israel. It could be separatist uh, groups, uh, which uh, sometimes carry out bombings and and attacks. The, the The latest one, I believe, was in was in December. Um, so mm-hmm. so it's still very unclear what what exactly happened in Iran. I the understand. Uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, an, an Iranian um, official news channel, though, did deny that there were any uh, Iranian commanders at the scene um, just to, to you know rule out that they that they have mm-hmm. been targeted.
6: Sarah Dadoush is with the Washington Post based in Beirut. Sarah, thank you as always.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up next... A recent cyber attack on a water system outside Pittsburgh is raising a lot of questions. Why there? And how vulnerable is our public infrastructure to hackers? Robin gets some answers when we return.
4: Did you kill Marlene Johnson?
0: I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked.
4: Well, the hacking of a small public water authority in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, is making people pay a little more attention to warnings about the vulnerability of all U.S. utilities. After all, what would Iranian hackers want with Aliquippa? In November, federal officials say it was Iranian hackers who shut down a remotely controlled device there that regulates water pressure. Workers were able to switch to manual operation and no customers were affected. But what if Aliquippa didn't have the alarms and manual backups it has? We've called up Stuart Baker, a cybersecurity lawyer, former general counsel of the National Security Agency. He's also served at the, as the assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security. And so, Stuart, I'm guessing this hacking doesn't surprise you?
7: No, it doesn't. Uh, although, uh, you know, picking Aliquippa probably was not <laughs> uh, high on uh, the Iranians' list of targets they wanted to hit.
4: Yeah, well, but there were events in 2021 uh, when water systems in the U.S. were hacked and attacked, and uh, five attacks, I believe, so there were warnings then. What do we know about why uh, Iranian hackers might attack any water utility in Aliquipa?
7: So I think they did it to show that they could, because they're mad about uh, uh, the uh, Hamas-Israel uh, uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I And this was a target of opportunity. It looks as though uh, al never changed its uh, default password, which was 1111, (laughs) uh, and they had their uh, uh, device on the Internet. So uh, if um, the Iranian hackers went looking for vulnerable devices, they would have found this, they would have typed in the... uh, the password that is the default, and they would have gotten access. Right. Uh, and I, I suspect it's nothing more than that in well, terms of their. Targeting.
4: Well, a couple things we should say. Presumably they've changed it by now, but if your password that something has come to you with is 1111 or 1234, you might want to change it. Um, the AP is reporting that they might have been targeting an Israeli-made device. Uh, this is uh, according, right. according to the federal government, uh, so making a point there as well. But, you know, there are about 150,000 active public water systems in this country, many of them, like Aliquippa, small, maybe understaffed, underfunded you know, talk a little more about these vulnerabilities. What can a hacker do? Can they, you know, make the water, you know, put more chemicals in it or something?
7: That is the the worry, that they, uh, they either could cut it off, which probably wouldn't last very long, or add in more chlorine uh, to the point where it's actually dangerous to yeah. consume, uh, or otherwise mix or take out the chlorine so that it's, Uh, uh, risky uh, from a public health point of view. So uh, there are things that could be done that would be very bad. Uh, It probably isn't the case. They could do physical damage, but maybe they could. Um, I I don't think the Iranians who did this are likely to be able to pull that off. But we have also seen um, some pretty sophisticated Chinese uh, military hackers Uh, breaking into water systems, um, apparently in preparation for a possible conflict with the United States over Taiwan, in which they want to cause as much damage as possible. Those guys are good. uh, And if there's a way they could physically break water systems by attacking the, uh, uh, the network that controls them, they would do that in All
4: a crisis. I right. have a minute here, but there's another layer here which is that many local utilities are are dealing with issues like aging pipes and, you know, rising costs, clean water standards. And meanwhile, uh, you know, privately owned water companies are pushing for requirements for safety, the public utilities worry, we read in the AP that that might be a backdoor to privatization, so they might be fighting some of these laws and indeed the EPA pro- proposed a new rule to require some auditing of cybersecurity at Water Systems, three states sued. So there's a political conflict here. We only have a few seconds. What would you want to see, Stuart Baker?
7: I think there should be regulation. Uh, The EPA did that without congressional authorization, and so it wasn't going to survive review. But there should be regulation. Uh, And uh, the people who are saying that's a backdoor to privatization are really saying we don't want to spend the money ...to uh, to protect uh, yeah. consumers of our water.
4: And they may not have it. Stuart Baker, a cybersecurity lawyer, former general counsel of the National Security Agency. Thank you so much.
1: Coming up, Carrie Callahan was once a prominent voice against gender-affirming care for kids... She drew on her own story of reversing her gender transition after taking testosterone and living as a trans man. But now she's speaking out against a possible ban on gender-affirming care for minors in her home state of Ohio. After the break, Scott asks Callahan what changed and what's at stake in Ohio.
0: Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how cash can be part of a balanced savings strategy for investors. Oftentimes people
3: think of their cash as the money they're using. But when there's a high-rate environment, your cash can also be a form of savings. So savings can sit in your cash account, and savings can sit in an investing account. And on average and over time, investments go up. But in a high-interest rate environment, you can get a more predictable return in a high-yield savings account. And so investors can choose both strategies, an investment strategy, as well as a cash strategy to both protect your principal because cash doesn't go down the way markets can, but also to earn a high yield.
0: Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
6: Ohio lawmakers are in a policy fight over transgender care. Legislators passed a bill to ban it for children, but Republican Governor Mike DeWine vetoed it. Now the State House is about to go into session and may have the votes to override the veto and keep the ban. We're going to talk now to an advocate for gender affirming care. Carrie Callahan transitioned and lived as a trans man, and years later, detransitioned. We should note that studies suggest very few trans people detransition. Carrie Callahan is now a therapist in her home state of Ohio. Carrie, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you, Scott. You're advocating for the availability of medical care for transgender persons, and you're telling your own story. So let me ask you to tell it briefly. Why did you choose to transition and then de-transition?
3: Yeah, so briefly, it it really seemed like transitioning was a path that would let me be more authentic, more joyful, have better relationships. And then you know, after a couple of years, it was clear to me I had gotten it wrong and I needed to work on other problems. That happened when the country was a lot different. This was 2012 to 2014. Mm. But just because it wasn't the correct path for me does not mean that it's an incorrect path for everyone.
6: Yeah. and, And you have described your journey as not a terrible outcome.
3: Why is it important? to tell your story. I think it's important to push back against a black and white nightmarish idea of detransition. It is a tough human experience and it does not make sense to take away healthcare from everyone because of an outcome like mine.
6: Yeah, and this is of course happening in a policy and a political context people who want to ban transgender care can certainly seize on stories like yours of detransition and say, aha, it shows gender transitioning is a bad idea, so we should ban it. Has your story been, in your view, manipulated by the right to fuel these bans?
3: Absolutely, my story has been manipulated. A detransition experience is necessarily complex, The right wing is interested in making it as black and white as possible to show people like me as people whose lives have been ruined. My life has not been ruined. It can ruin people's lives to not have access to this necessary health care.
6: Years ago, Carrie, I believe you stated publicly that you were against gender affirming care. Is that right? Has your own view changed, evolved?
3: Yes, I said that in a very different context, both in my life and in the co- in the country. In my first YouTube video, I said, if I was able to get this wrong at 30, couldn't a child get this wrong? This was before I was a parent. It was before I was a clinician myself. Mm. And it was before we were talking about making this kind of healthcare illegal. Many 12 year olds can get this decision right. Many 30 year olds can get this decision right. If an individual gets it wrong, we can create support for them to make that experience not so difficult. And I would view my life as evidence that you can go through the tough experience of detransition mm. and turn out to be a very blessed person. Carrie, I understand for a while
6: you receded from public life on these questions, but now you know you're you're very active uh, advocating for this care. What has that been? like for you and now you're of course joining other organizations on this side of the debate
3: in 2021 I felt like the issue was getting polarized beyond my skill set I felt very stupid I felt like I didn't understand all the players and I felt like uh, I was out of my depth and I receded from public life and then I saw in anti-trans detransitioner come across one of my social media feeds at a Marjorie Taylor Greene rally, and I felt very scared and felt like I had a responsibility to be a lot more active and engaged to push back against these really polarized, dangerous narratives.
6: Yeah. Uh, I wanna uh, talk to you, Carrie, about the, the kinds of medical care that are at issue in this policy debate. Can you talk about the kind of care you received more than a decade ago, and in your view, the kinds of care people should have access to today?
3: Yes. so I received care that was very, very different from the kind of care that is at risk of being made illegal in Ohio. So I was an adult. I went through an informed consent process after getting an old diagnosis of gender identity disorder. That is no longer the diagnosis. What is being debated now are very comprehensive programs in Ohio where children receive comprehensive care. There's family therapy involved. There's individual therapy. The majority of kids who go through these six programs do not progress on to having even hormonal interventions. They don't get puberty blockers. They don't get hormones. None of these six programs offer surgery to minors. This is a very different kind of care than what I received, and it would have been a great thing in my life had I had access to this kind of holistic wraparound service.
6: I see. So that is for people who might think, oh, this kind of care is about hormones, it's about surgical procedures. It's actually about a lot more than that.
3: Absolutely. It provides a lot more care, and there is... A notion presented by the right wing that doctors are very quick to push kids towards permanent medical interventions, that is absolutely not the case. Most of the kids who receive care at these programs only receive behavioral health interventions like therapy, family therapy.
6: Mm. Well, speaking of, of medical groups, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, all publicly support gender-affirming care, the AMA, says an established body of research shows the necessity of mental health care, hormone therapy, and sex reassignment surgery in treating gender dysphoria. Can you tell us a little bit more about the evidence we have about this care?
3: So the AMA feels confident saying that because the evidence for gender-affirming care is robust. With any kind of medicine, current research is always important. And there is current research happening to establish the prevalence of things like detransition. But the AMA feels comfortable advocating to keep this care legal because this kind of care has the same evidentiary body as every other kind of healthcare out there.
6: Carrie, you've had your own journey that you're telling. You're also a therapist, a clinician. If Ohio lawmakers override the governor's veto, what does that mean for patients?
3: What it means for patients is that, and this is already happening, their families have to consider moving out of Ohio to access the care. And I, I just want to point out how stressful that is for a patient discerning gender identity to have their families' lives be on the line in that way. Low stakes help people discern what path would help them. Making this kind of care an issue of public debate raises all the stakes, it increases stress, and families have reported that their children are dealing with long-term stress symptoms, nightmares, anxiety attacks, creating an atmosphere where children have to worry about their families moving is not good for the well-being of those kids. Mm.
6: You know, I understand in the context of the Ohio legislature opening its session soon and considering whether to override the governor's veto that many Ohio lawmakers do not
3: want to talk to you. Is that right? Yes. Unfortunately, I have not had any Ohio lawmakers want to speak to me. And the detransitioner, who was found in Ohio to advocate for the ban, did get an audience with many lawmakers.
6: You think their minds are already made
3: up? Yes, on some level, I do think their minds are already made up, and the perspective that I would offer would be very inconvenient. And so uh, I I cannot know for sure, but that is one interpretation. And to, to
6: other lawmakers in the country, to other people in the country who are asking these questions, who are considering legislation on, on transgender issues, right? medical care, whether to allow or ban it, on bathrooms, on sports teams. What do you want to tell them about your experience and how it informs you
3: on these questions? I do not see an upside to anyone to creating an America where trans people are segregated. I do not see a personal upside to myself for an Ohio where a trans person can't attend college, use bathrooms that are safest for them, play sports, see their doctors. Building an America where trans people have to live in certain states to fully participate in public life does not have an upside to anyone.
6: Carrie Callahan is a therapist in Ohio. She transitioned and then detransitioned. She is now advocating to protect gender-affirming care in her state. Carrie, thank you for taking the time and telling your story.
3: Thank you, Scott.
1: That'll do it for us today. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Karen miller metson James Mastro marino Sam Rapleson, and Gabrielle Healy. Today's editors were Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, and Micaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Patrick O'Connor. Our theme music is by Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagan and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening.
5: can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been.
6: On every episode of NPR's Thru Line, we go back in time to where it started. Like, really started. To answer one important question, how did we get here? Find NPR's Thru Line wherever you get your podcasts.